sixth lecture in the Medical Innovation Series um, and the third of our Phase 2 section. Um, two weeks ago we heard from Sue Dobson regarding the sociological approach to organizational change and innovation. Um, last week we looked at intellectual property rights with Robert Pitt-Kethley and Linda Naylor. And today we're looking at another niche area which is service delivery innovations in the NHS. Um, both in terms of theory and practice. And we're very lucky to have two extremely distinguished speakers tonight. Um, let me introduce first, however, our chairman for this evening. Um, Professor Colin Mayer is the dean of the Side Business School. Um, he's had a long and distinguished career um, in both academia and business, um, trained first in engineering, science and economics, and has held a variety of distinguished positions at Harvard University, the Bank of England, and at the European Science Foundation Network. Um, it's with enormous pleasure, and we're very lucky indeed to have Professor Colomea chair today's session. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Matthew. Um, delighted to be uh, introducing and chairing uh, this session. Uh, Medical innovation is obviously a, a fascinating subject. Um, and normally in, in people's minds, it's associated with technological uh, innovations. But in actual fact, much of medical innovation is not necessarily of that form at all. It's as much associated with processes as technology. Uh, for example, the different use of facilities, operating rooms, beds, equipment, the different uses of people, uh, junior people in place of senior people or vice versa, management people instead of uh, professional people, um, and organizational changes, for example, changes in reporting lines and responsibilities, etc. So much of what is meant by medical innovation is actually what we in business schools and business education are very much concerned with and is central to what we teach and research uh, here in the business school. So uh, I'm particularly pleased that we can host uh, tonight's uh, talk. Um, and the business school is very pleased to be associated more generally with the initiative uh, that is going on in Oxford to create a really significant presence in the healthcare area, an initiative that we're engaged in with the medical science departments, um, and in particular in relation to the possibility of creating an academic health science center uh, in Oxford. There's a lot of expertise uh, in the business school uh, in the fields of organizational behavior, and um, Sue Dobson clearly has been associated with this series. Uh, also in the areas of entrepreneurship uh, and innovation, and it's destined to become a major area of uh, expansion within uh, the business school. Steve Furman is a health economist specializing in improving productivity and efficiency of services while ensuring maximum benefits for patients. Uh, in recent years, he's led programs of work to redesign cancer and cardiovascular care pathways to ensure that new standards 
were met. Most recently, he's led a highly innovative program of work to apply lean thinking from car manufacturing to the redesign of 27 patient car, care pathways across a broad range of specialities. Well, I'm very pleased to be here this evening to talk to you about um, process innovation in healthcare. And I'm going to talk to you from um, a very different perspective than uh, Jonathan Meekins will be speaking after me. Um, I'm not a clinician, and I'm going to be taking the perspective of somebody who supports clinicians, really, in making changes and improvements to the quality of service that they're able to deliver to their patients. Whereas Jonathan will be talking to you as a clinician with direct input with patients. So we have a different perspective. Um, my job title is called Head of Service Improvement, which tells you absolutely nothing about uh, what I do. So um, by way of introduction, I'm going to... Um, maybe? Ah, tell a short story about a fridge. Um, this is... Uh, a very simple piece of process change, um, but it's a good example of how uh, clinical teams sometimes can be so involved in and close to a process that they can't see um, the way of making it uh, different and the way to improve it for patients. Um, basically, this was about um, a thrombolysis target. There's a thrombolysis target in the NHS, which means that when a patient with a cardiac arrest arrives at the door of your hospital, you have to uh, give them thrombolytic drugs, clot-busting drugs, within 30 minutes. And there was a hospital in this uh, region which was, just could not do that. It just couldn't do it ever. Um, and a team of people went out to have a, a look at what it was that they were doing. Um, and when we got there, we asked them to... Uh, do one of these, which is a process map. And basically, everybody who's involved in the process uh, writes what they do on a yellow sticky, and we put them all over the wall, and we try and put them in order of what happens. And one of those yellow stickies had on, had on it the word ring porter. So we said, well, who wrote that down? And it was a nurse who'd written down ring porter. And we said, well, what, what is that then? And he said, well, we have to ring the porter to say that there's a patient here so that they can go and get the drugs. And I said, so, and then what happened was this porter set on a, on a seven-minute walk to a fridge on the other side of the hospital, collected the drugs, seven-minute walk back, then they were able to apply the drugs. Now, if you've only got 30 minutes, if you have to set that porter off really quickly if you're going to hit the, uh, hit the target. So it was obvious why they couldn't do it. So what we did was we moved the fridge into the department. <laughs> and... Uh, that was the easiest piece of process redesign I've ever been involved in, but it means that that hospital now constantly hits that target, and actually those patients are getting a much better quality service now, and that's the important thing about it. So that's a little bit about what I do, but that's a very simplistic example. Um, just a brief few words about South Central, where it fits. Uh, there is South Central SHA area. It covers the counties of uh, Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. Sort of the shape like a bit like a, an exclamation mark in the bottom of England. Um, it has 24 NHS organisations within it. Nine are primary care trusts who commission care. Um, nine are uh, acute care trusts, which are providing um, acute and tertiary care. 
Um, and then there are mental health trusts and, and others as well. There are around 4 million people here. It's about four times the size of Luxembourg. I don't know if that means anything to any of you, but my chief executive likes saying that. Um, <laughs> it, it has a total budget of around 5 billion people and more than 88,000 staff. And of those 88,000 staff, that's 5% that's of the whole working population of South Central Area. And of those 88,000 staff, almost exactly 10,000 are doctors of some form or another. And then there's another um, around 50,000 who are nurses or uh, allied health professionals. So that's, that's roughly what uh, South Central consists of. And this is a typical day in the NHS in South Central. And what I really want to draw your attention to here is that during any one day in South Central, 20,000 people will be will arrive at or already be in a hospital receiving care. And another 60,000 people will see a general practitioner. Now that is an awful lot of people interacting with clinicians in any one day in South Central. And the processes around those, I think there's probably quite a lot of scope in those uh, 80,000 interactions for improvement. So just a very brief word about what the SHA does. Um, I work for the SHA. Um, we do three things, uh, really. We do assurance of system performance. Now, what that means is, uh, that's like asking the question, are you hitting targets? So that's what assurance of system performance is. Support for system reform means, is the market or the mix of services that you have in your area the right mix of services for the patients that you've got. So there's a lot of talk these days about the market in the NHS and about private providers coming in. And that's usually where there is no, there's a monopoly provider of care and there's no alternative, there's no choice for patients, which is a big, uh, a big issue for patients now in the NHS, about being offered choice. So we support system reform. And the other thing that we do is where I work, which is in support for system development. Has the system got the right capabilities and skills to deliver quality care? And the answer is sometimes is yes and sometimes is no. But I work on people who are developing the systems around clinicians. And from January 2009, we have a statutory duty to support innovation. I'm not going to talk about that, but there is a, I've done a one-page handout which uh, has been, is, was outside um, and the reason I'm not going to talk about it is because I actually don't know very much about it yet because it's a very new duty and we don't, we're not 100% sure how we're going to do it um, but I've left you a little bit of information and um, I'm sure that in time that will become clearer. So I'm going to move on now to what I really came here to talk about. Um, what is innovation? Now, any of you who were here for Professor Sir Tom Bell's talk, the first one in this series, will have heard him say these two things, that innovation was both novelty created by discovery or process modification, and that it was, could be seen as the interface between disciplines, and he used the example of engineering and medicine. Now, I'm not going to argue with Professor Sir Tom Bell. I think there are an awful lot of uh, innovation definitions out there, but I think these are as good as any. I think that uh, in terms of process modification, that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about, novelty. And innovation is the interface between disciplines 
I'm again going to use um, the example from, I'm going to use the car industry, but he used engineering. So, in the health service, we consider innovation to be on a spectrum. And that spectrum goes from physical innovations, which are where most people think of as being innovation. They think of new drugs, they think of new devices, they think of new hip joints that a surgeon may develop in his hospital. That's a very much um, a new physical innovation. But then there are new procedures, and where I'm going to be talking about is new care pathways. And these are somewhere in the middle, but there are process innovations right out at the other end of the uh, social end, which are things like obesity prevention programs, um, alcohol awareness programs, and these are things that you see on the television, telling you to you know, get more exercise, drink less alcohol, these kinds of innovative ways of thinking about processes. So they are what we would call social innovations. This is a, um, a model from Rogers. Uh, Rogers liked to think of, uh, he thought that innovation had five attributes. Um, this model was mentioned by Professor Dobson a couple of weeks ago, and she described it as an old-style managerial model. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have value. Uh, <laughs> um, what Rogers thought was that actually innovation needs to have these five uh, attributes. So it needs relative advantage, and that is the degree to which it is better than what you have now. Uh, compatibility. So what is the perceived fit of the new innovation with the structures, procedures, and in particular the values of what's there already? Complexity. How easy is it to implement your innovation? Trialability. How can it be tried without major resource investment? Do you need an awful lot of money and an awful lot of people's time, or can you just try it fairly easily? And observability. How visible are the results? How quickly can you see your benefits from your innovation? And the reason I'm showing that is because I'm going to come back to it at the end to show how a particular process innovation matches those, those attributes that Rogers set out there. This is a bit of an um, improvement. I mean, I think if you went to any clinician, they would, they would agree with this statement, actually. It's from Professor John Besson. Improvement always means change, but change doesn't always mean improvement. And I think that's absolutely right. People are always trying to force improvement on you. Um, but actually, in many cases, it's very difficult to show how the improvement um, is really registered. So what I want to talk to you about is, is something about how we can make sure that the improvement is a real improvement. So what is a service delivery innovation? It's about really applying a new way of thinking um, or a new methodological discipline to a service. So Helen Bevan, who is the um, Director of Transformation at the NHS Institute for Innovation and Improvement, she's always using a phrase, stolen with pride because she believes that actually most process innovations are out there somewhere in the world, and it's really about finding them and applying them to your own circumstances and building them into the way that you work. 
It's about doing things differently or doing different things to achieve large gains in performance, although I put performance in inverted commas there because we're really about patient care. It's not all about leading edge clinical practice and technology. And actually, innovative commissioning of a service and the delivery of care can significantly impact on health and healthcare. So, what are the things that we actually know about the systems and processes? Berwick has written a lot about um, systems, and he says that uh, current processes are perfectly designed to get the results they're currently getting. Well, fair enough. Uh, and Senge would say that current processes are perfectly designed to take up 100% of the time of the people who work in them. So, that's also pretty obvious, really. Um, but what that means is that to improve quality, actually, you've got to change the system. You've got to change the process. Or you've got to fundamentally alter it. Because otherwise, it's not going to work for the people who are working in the system now. So in terms of what needs to be changed, I think what we know is that actually everything might need to change, almost, um, if it's the system that's a problem. And certainly, you need to change the parts that aren't adding value for patients. And that's what I'm going to come on to now. Deming said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And uh, he, of course, developed several, um, some of which are useful. Um, so I'm not going to use one of his, but I'm going to use his quote. But I think this, this model here comes from um, the Virginia Mason Medical Center in um, Seattle. Uh, they're a highly successful in terms of the quality of the care they provide, healthcare provider. Um, and what they say is that you need three attributes for successful change to a new service model. First of all, you've got to have a vision for your service. And I have never met a clinical team who don't have a vision for how their service could be better if only something changed. Now, that might be money, it might be the system they're working in, um, it might be something else, but they, they all have a vision. An understanding of the local culture is very important, and that goes back to Roger's model about how does your new innovation fit with the culture that you already have in the organization, and that you nearly need to understand that. But what you also need is an appropriate change method, um, and that's what I'm going to come on to now, um, because actually that is very, very important. And the method that you choose is really um, key to whether you're going to be successful in a sustainable way or not. So we know that there are a lot of methods out there. Um, lots of industries have developed their own methods. Healthcare has developed its own methods. And I'm going to talk to you about um, Lean. Lean was developed um, in the car industry by Toyota. Some people call it the uh, Toyota um, model change. Um, a Toyota method. But uh, Lean is, was developed by them, and it's basically an improvement approach which improves flow through a system and it eliminates waste. So wherever there's waste in your process, um, Lean will identify it and weed it out. Um, it's about getting the right things in the right place at the right time, in the right quantities. So it's all those 
things which actually you don't really want your collisions having to worry about. They just want it to work. Um, and you've got to minimize this waste and you've got to bring the flexibility in, in as well. So that's the next thing. And lastly, it's bringing into healthcare a whole series of new concepts, tools and methods which have been utilized in other industries to improve flow. Now I know, you know a number of you are sitting out there thinking, oh yeah, but healthcare is not like a not like a production line, and you would be right. Healthcare is not like a production line. Um, but actually, a lot of what we do in the NHS is surprisingly similar to a production line, I think it would be fair to say. Um, and these two um, documents are really worth a read. Um, Womack and Jones, this is the sort of classic lean thinking book, which was produced in 1996. Um, and that, the other one is a, a very small book. It's only about 20 pages. It was produced by the NHS Institute for Innovation Improvement, Going Lean in the NHS. Um, and if anybody's interested, I would certainly recommend you have a look at uh, one or other or both of those. So what are the basic principles of lean? First of all, you have to understand the value in your process. And in healthcare, it's incredibly easy because there is only one value, and that is the value that the patient gets from the process. Okay, now I know that um, some clinicians might find that a difficult concept, but actually that's true. Only the patient value is, um, has, has any value in a lean process. Um, identify the value stream. So in other words, what are the bits of the process which are adding value for the patient? so that you can identify the waste because there will be an awful lot of bits of the process which aren't adding value for the patient. And I'll show you an example of that in a minute. So you have to eliminate the waste and encourage flow through the system for the patient. And you need to base your system on pull. So in other words, rather than pushing a patient onto the next step of the process, you wait until the patient is actually ready to move on to the next step of the process and you base your system around when the, when the patient is ready. And you continually improve. You seek perfection, as Toyota would say. So, a few diagrams. Um, these are all uh, done from sort of lean processes. This is a different version of a process map. And if the eagle-eyed amongst you might know that this, see that this is related to um, production of a GP letter in a hospital. This is production of a letter to a GP. And it took... 1,732 metres of walking in the hospital to produce that letter. Um, that's quite a lot, I think. Um, the second one uh, is a thing called a string diagram, and this shows all the uh, interactions between people to produce that same letter. And um, the very, very eagle-eyed of you will see that there is a small green line on there, which actually is the bit that added value for the patient. Um, and this... Um, is actually quite a simple, quite a simple process as well. This is called a handoff chart, and this shows a process where a patient was moving through a hospital, and every time there's a pink sticker on there, that means that the patient was handed from one person to another person. So that patient saw an awful lot of people during their visit to hospital, and that clearly wasn't all adding value for the patient. So that's just a few uh, examples of. How you can look at a patient, how you can look at a process. Now, this is I'm going to give you an example now of um, a lean transformation of a LUTs um, pathway in Buckinghamshire. 
and that stands for lower urinary, urine, urinary tract system. <laughs> Difficult to say, actually. Um, and I will read to you what it says on there, because what they did was they, uh, they elicited patient values um, before, they, before they started. And so the patient had values in four dimensions, choice. So they wanted to know the date of their appointment. They wanted to know where they were going to be treated. They wanted to know the date they were going to be uh, going to have surgery. And they wanted to know when they were going to see their GP and consult. Well, that doesn't seem too difficult, really. They wanted information. They wanted a clear pathway. They wanted to understand their diagnosis. Um, they wanted to know what was happening and why. And they didn't want anyone to change their appointment. In terms of environment, they wanted signs so that they could see where they were going. They wanted parking. They wanted disabled slots. They wanted waiting areas that were comfortable and convenient. Um, given the nature of the uh, procedure, they wanted access to toilets. Um, and they wanted an appropriate clinical environment. And lastly, clinically, they wanted effective treatment. They wanted expert clinicians to deal with them. They wanted all the investigations completed, and they didn't want their operation cancelled. So that's what the patient saw as value in a visit to the hospital for a lower urinary tract system visit. Um, but this is what Lean showed them about their pathway. Um, what this shows you is that uh, basically if we, look at the, if we look at the bottom corner here, this is a pathway which took 33 weeks of which four and a half days was valuable to the patient. Um, 13 weeks of that was waiting for a urodynamics test. So that's 33 weeks and only four and a half days is adding value for a patient. So that's what they started with before they did the lean transformation. And this is what they moved on to. So you can see that the green bits have got much bigger. So we've still got the four and a half days, but we're now down to 7.8 to 9.8 weeks. That is a much better... Um, pathway. It's still not perfect, but I don't think even the, even the patient would be able to move through it in four and a half days. There are always essential bits, which are um, what they call essential waste. Um, things like bits of, bits of uh, preparing letters and things which you must have to do. Um, but basically you can see that they took out a whole series of steps which were unnecessary for the patient. They gathered together all the diagnostic tests in one place. They had all the diagnostic tests in one, in one place. They've got the one-stop clinic. You just go, the patient goes in, they have all their tests, and they go home. Um, they have a urodynamics, they have pre-op assessment, discharge planning, all at the same time. So everything is done when the patient needs it. So the patient is pulling through the system. They're not pushing, being pushed. So if we go back to um, uh, Rogers' attributes of innovation, um, and have a look at those. What I want to do is I'll show you, um, there's a, a system called the Productive Ward, um, which uh, the NHS Institute has produced recently. Um, and that's basically a system whereby um, nursing on a ward has been applied, they've applied lean principles to nursing on a ward. And they called it releasing time to care, which was a winner to start with, because actually that's exactly what nurses want, is time to care. So... It had relative advantage. It gave them time to care for their patients. Compatibility, it was exactly what they wanted to do for their patients. So it was completely compatible with what they were, with the culture that they had already. It was very simple to implement. The techniques were made very simple for them. There was no lean language. 
It was done through initial pilots, and there were videos available of the results. So you could see, if you were in one hospital, you could go and look at a video of what had happened in another hospital, and you could see the amazing transformation that had taken place. And what they'd done was they'd done what they call visual management. They'd put things, charts on the walls, graphs on the walls, results. They'd video each other. So they've got now lots of high, high visibility of how successful they, they really are in this process. So Productive Ward has been hugely successful, and it's created a genuine pull for change. There is hardly a ward in the country now that is not uh, either undergoing this process already or is seeking to undergo it in the next few months. It's been a massively successful um, lean transformation exercise. So what's it done? Well, um, this is, uh, these are figures from the NHS Institute, and what they've done is, what they show is, this is the kind of... Um, benefits that they've got. I think these, these were taken from a, um, a pilot at Basingstoke Hospital, which isn't a million miles from here. Um, basically, medicine round times are reduced by 63%. Um, direct care time with patients was increased by 45%. I mean, these are huge, huge changes. Um, four hours of walking time a week saved by just moving equipment around, you know, not hiding it in a cupboard down the hall, but actually putting it where it's needed, when it's needed. Handover time is reduced by a third. And a massive reduction in patient complaints, and that's actually a bit of a, um, a signal for the fact that you're doing well. So how do you identify the need for your innovation services? Well, um, not a very good reason, but not hitting targets is nearly always a pressure. Um, the need to make savings is nearly always a pressure as well. Peer pressure, evidence, audit, patient choice. Peer pressure is very effective with clinicians. Clinicians seeking to be the best all the time, I've found. Patient complaints, again, you know, it's a way it forces you to look at your process, but it's not really ideal. Ideally, it would be this seeking perfection thing that Toyota talk about. So, lastly, really, um, some lessons for successful processes. And number one, and it definitely is number one, is that change works best when clinicians or even patients, uh, lead from the front. There is now some work on um, what they call uh, evidence-based design, um, which is working with patients to redesign services um, with their clinical teams within hospitals. Um, number two, prepare properly. If you're a clinical team and you're going to make changes in your, the way that you work, you've really got to know what you want the outcomes to be, and you've got to be really clear what your success criteria are, and actually, everybody in your team and the people working around you have got to want the same things because if you don't want the same things, then you won't get them. Have sponsorship at the right level. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of temptation when you're a manager to say, oh, we need the chief exec signed up. Actually, you don't always need the chief exec signed up. You just need the person who can give permission to make the changes, and it's not usually the chief executive. Um, you will have to commit to changing your business as usual. Once you start a lean transformation of your processes, there will be no going back. Um, people become uh, real champions of a new way of working, and it's very difficult to uh, reverse the process once you've started. You will also need to have people trained up. Um, lean doesn't just happen. You need people with the right skills um, to do it. You're going to need to understand why change sustains. And just as, a, as an example of um, somebody who wasn't really very... Um, Henry Ford 
uh, wasn't really very sensitive to his customers' uh, wishes. So there's a famous quote which says, they can have any color as long as it's black. Um, which, you know, I know that you now go into a car showroom and things are different. So you can go in and you say, I want a blue one with a sunroof. And they'll say, well, I can do a fantastic deal on a red one with uh, air conditioning, which actually isn't really what you want either. Um, what you really need is something that sustains. And that, Toyota would say, is the way that they work, which is you go in, you say, I want a red one with air conditioning, and they will pull a red one with air conditioning out of their system for you. Um, so, and the lastly, and probably number two, really, is good data and information are key to gaining and sustaining success. Thank you very much.